Welcome to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains who are also human and sometimes better at being humans than saints. I will be sharing my own experiences of being a chaplain and interviewing others to hear their stories and the stories of their families, as well as learning from colleagues we work with in related fields, because it's our own humanity that unites us on this very spiritual journey through a very mortal life. Hello. Hello. You, husband, have not actually been on this podcast yet. Hello, everybody. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> so we started the Chaplain podcast, mm-hmm. and then summer happened, mm-hmm. and we have six children. Yes, we do. All with special needs. And a puppy. And a puppy. <laughs> and I got deployed. And we all had COVID. Yes. And summer still happened. Yes. So finally, the children have gone back to school. Hallelujah. (laughs) And here we are, and you're a guest on the podcast today. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So there are some things I want to chat about with you today that we've been discussing and learning. But before we talk about those things, tell me what has it been like for you having a chaplain wife oh wow because i feel like maybe that was not something you imagined when you were in on your mission in korea (laughs) well i was i was told that the harder i worked on my mission more awesome my wife would be so i worked really hard (laughs) well thank you i needed help being awesome uh what has it been like having a chaplain wife um it requires a lot of flexibility and going with the flow. Um, There was a season where you were in training, and so I had to, um, I mean, we do a lot of serial parenting, (laughs) where you you have child duty, and then I have child duty, and then you have child duty. We sort of switch back and forth a lot. We are one, I'm sorry for interrupting, but when you look at the family proclamation and talking about mothers do this and fathers do this, You and I are at the end of that paragraph where it talks about individual adaptation. We are definitely individuals and require some adaptation. (laughs) The other thing, though, about that is that we still have, despite our unusual circumstances, in culture, not in our faith, our faith is strong, but in culture, lots of men have the jobs and lots of the women stay home not always but traditionally in the culture that has kind of been a thing sure but i'm an adult convert and i already had my doctorate and i was already licensed and you were a writer and when we got together and were raising children it was easier for me to work those hours and provide for the family in less time than for you to have a desk job and it be a lot for six children. Yeah. 
And so we have just sort of maintained that flow of where my my career has just sort of continued. Your career comes in chunks as it is available and between children crises and when you're able to write and when you're able to do shows and 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 we both have done a lot of work in the background while parenting. So so you writing in between running kids' places or you writing after they're in bed. After they're in bed. Or me doing telehealth from hospital rooms. And <laughs> the Kevin like Kevin Father has provided for us consistently and so carefully despite our usual circumstances. Yeah. So that's one piece of things I just wanted to address from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So what was that like for you? Specifically, I guess in the beginning you were talking about CPE when I was in training. Um it was challenging because our kids were all really young then. So it was, I think at the time we were living in a two bedroom house. We had six children all packed into one bedroom with two triple bunk beds. And uh, those were the days. Oh boy. So many little shoes to tie. So many plates of food to cut. <laughs> it was a lot of work. Um, six kids under five. Yeah. Um, and one on oxygen in a G-tube. There's that, yeah. But that's just kind of life. That was, we got through it. Um, your, your chaplain work, I feel like, has sort of come in seasons of more intense work versus less intense work. Um, back when you had to, we're spending months at a time in war zones and natural disaster areas that was that was stressful both single parenting and not being sure about your safety or um, what was going to happen next but we just pushed through it and you came home and we carried on so it's it's taken some faith and some endurance and built up some emotional muscles that I didn't know that I had but or that we even needed. Yeah. It our whole marriage has been apart. Or <laughs> it really feels <laughs> like it has been. When we met, I was in Oklahoma and you were in New York. So we did like correspondence every day and a lot of phone calls and um occasional visits in the same time zone, but only twice before we got together to get married. I visited you and then you visited me and then for a few days. And then we met to go to the temple. <laughs> you know, as one does. Who does that? <laughs> after we got married, you were still working in New York, so... Right after the honeymoon, moon, I had to leave to go back to New York. And then and when you came home for Christmas, my mother was killed. Yeah. And then we had miscarriages. And then by our first anniversary, we had like nine foster children. <laughs> yeah, I... I imagined like a sweet lying in together in bed in the morning, just snuggled up. And instead I spent the morning wiping diarrhea out of a toddler's pajama pants. <laughs> Yay, parenthood. Yeah. It's pretty special. And, and 
immediately we had hard things. We had all these kids with special needs. We had the miscarriages that we found out were because of cancer. We dealt with the cancer. And then we had these moments of getting orders. Hey, you're going to the Middle East tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did do that, didn't we? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And then other but times. But that was us together. That was a nice shared adventure. And then other times we had, you've been away for productions or mm -hmm. we've been deployed for a while. This back and forth of really one of us, like talking about the family proclamation, one of us has always been with the children. We've always had one of us at home, an at-home parent with the children. But I think it's one reason we're exhausted that one of us is always working and one of us is with the children. Neither of us are resting. Yeah. And we're not home at the same time, hardly at all. Yeah. From the beginning. It's like an AP level parenting correspondence course. <laughs> we take turns on campus. <laughs> so how would you describe chaplains to someone in our church? Because you grew up in the church. I did. And chaplains are not something we talk about very much. Not really. So how would you describe, and there's different kinds, but... And even my assignments have been so different depending on if I'm at a hospital or in the community or deployed. So what what is that? How would you describe that to people who are like, what is it your wife does? Mostly I enjoy keeping it mysterious. The doula of death. <laughs> I just say, oh, yeah, she's she's in Afghanistan or something, you know, whatever is appropriate at the time. I like leaving people in awe of you. Uh, but I think most people in our church have a sense of chaplains in the military. Like they know that that's like a, a thing that there are church representatives of, of all the different religions that serve in the military. And, um, so I say, she's like that, except not in the military, uh, hospital, schools, um, recovery zones well then it's so interesting because i do also work with the military or mm. a lot in fact in my most recent deployment i ran into one of our latter-day saint chaplains and it was like hello what are you doing here because usually we see each other in salt lake That's for awesome. our annual training right yeah the one where i get to sit at the wives table <laughs> fun thing because in the beginning you did have to go to the wives luncheon yes, all by yourself <laughs> but now there's a lot of women chaplains oh good and it's a spouse lunch oh i didn't know that that's nice well we haven't been able to go because kurt COVID got a cold and he coughed through someone's talk and so now we're not allowed to bring children anymore <laughs> even though i was trying to be a good parent by making it one child at a time and letting them take turns as they got old enough i had forgotten about that mm -hmm. but he got sick on the trip there mm -hmm. and so he was coughing during someone's talk and they are like you can't come back anymore and i'm like well i have a lot of children so it's a long time before i'm gonna be back <laughs> That was really hard. That was a hard moment for me because I was so grateful, especially where we live when it's so rural. It's not like I live in Salt Lake or 
with other military chaplains. Like I'm so isolated yeah. that to lose access to those annual trainings was really hard for me emotionally and mentally and professionally even. But at the same time, all of those trainings are available online. Mm. And as I found, I don't know, my safe people or getting to know chaplain, it's hard because I'm so shy, yeah. which is ironic with a podcast. But I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to connect with others, even yeah. in that group. And so it was, I think I grieved that a little bit. And so sure. we haven't been back to Salt Lake since. Not because I don't want to go to Salt Lake, but... It just hasn't been practical. Right. Well, and if they want me to prioritize parenting, then that's what we're doing. And so instead of being in Salt Lake for those trainings, I have been at home with the children. So we've missed that. But they do. There's a lot more women chaplains now. And there are the annual lunch is a spouse lunch. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. So one of the other things that is interesting about chaplains is that it's not about proselytizing right so when you went on your mission in korea that was a proselytizing mission and it was about teaching people about the church teaching people about the gospel helping people understand what you were there representing but with chaplains it's not about proselytizing how would you explain or describe that to people i feel like it's about meeting people where they are right that you, um, I mean, you have the gift of this Holy Ghost, that you were able to have the Spirit with you, and you minister to people in the ways that they are ready to receive. Um, people in a time of crisis need to feel God's love. They need to feel comfort. They need to understand that whatever their struggle is has a place in God's plan for them. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to change churches right now. Um, so I think it's... Or attend church at all. Yeah. So it's service to people in a way that reaches out to them where they are. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing. We've, we've talked a lot about how I feel like before you joined the church, you were ministering to people in communities that the church could not have reached because they wouldn't have been open to uh, members of our church. But now, as a chaplain, you were able to continue doing that. Right? You continue reaching those people, and you have such a broad education in religion that um, you're able to speak their, their language in a variety of ways, that you are able to speak um, to what their level of understanding is and what their their language for expressing their faith might be, meaning not just foreign language, but like, what is the terminology? What is the way this particular um, religion depicts the communion between man and God? And, and I think you have great talents in those areas. What is that like for you, having grown up in the church and now having children who are like, is it Passover yet? <laughs> I think it's wonderful. Um, I mean, I grew up in the church, but I grew up in the church living in Oklahoma. So it's not like we were surrounded by other members of the church. We've always been 
surrounded by peoples of other faiths. And so I love the idea of embracing, um, learning about other cultures, embracing people who believe other things. That's really important to me. And even recently, we had one of my best friends, Peter, Mm. who grew up Jewish, but now considers himself atheist even. And he stayed with us for the weekend Mm -hmm. and then ended up praying with us and and sitting with us through meals. And and came to church with us. Came to church with us and, and sharing not just interfaith, but non-faith and recognizing that faith is more than just church culture that when you experience this that counts as faith and when you experience this that counts as faith yeah what have you learned from some of the things that we have done with other faiths or like passover or what have you learned about your own faith what have i learned about my own faith from how we have interacted with other religions I feel like it's it's been a lot of confirmation about how God is the God of the whole earth, that he does teach truth to people all over the world, um, that all of, all of the different faith traditions are there to teach people to be good, to teach people um, in preparation for returning to live with Heavenly Father. Uh, I think in any... any religion that I have had experience with, you can absolutely find wonderful truth there that uh, harmonizes with what we've been taught um, and that you find people there who are doing their best and being good and serving in amazing ways. That reminds me of that line from the temple about it all coming into one whole. Mm -hmm. And I have really loved that line is one of my favorite lines in the temple because I did grow up with such different experiences before I found the church and working through what does that look like and how does my faith continue to grow into what it has become now into something more mature as I continue to pray and study and reflect and ponder and act in faith and it really changes things um So one of the things that we talked about recently was because someone at church gave a talk about obedience, Mm. but I had, and, and I had been pondering some specific things about obedience and about covenant keeping and about boundaries. I push boundaries a little bit sometimes, not in an inappropriate way or straying kind of way, but in a wanting to do just that, what, of wanting to include my whole self. And having grown up outside the church, there's so many pieces of me that I'm like, do I turn this off? Do I just pause this? Is it a bad piece? Do I put myself away? Am I bad? And I don't even mean sin. I just mean as a convert, learning to discern the difference between my testimony and church culture or covenant keeping and good and bad. And that it doesn't have to be so binary, even though there are absolute principles. And so one of the things that came to me was through this talk and it was interesting because we had been talking about it and pondering and praying and then this talk which was not about what we were talking about at all but just lined everything out for me Mm -hmm. 
And I realized that growing up as a Protestant, like in my childhood, in an evangelical kind of environment, it was all about being saved by grace through faith. And how I experienced that was trying hard to be good enough or else. But with my conversion into the church or my conversion to the gospel, not to people, but to the gospel, it became after all I can do, saved by grace, right? And so obedience became my act of faith and that is enough. Not because I'm so good, but because the Savior is good because I am good because I'm Heavenly Father's child and because the atonement was enough, I am enough. Yeah. Right? But I was realizing that really the next step in that for me and as I learn and grow is all I can do, which goes back to what you and I talk about all the time with the kids about what we do is a desire for righteousness and a willingness to repent. And that being the boundaries, like a fence, yeah. that keep us safe in our relationship with Heavenly Father or keep us on the covenant path. And that grace is what becomes the playground. So that process goes from the death of the Savior or the atonement of the Savior, which we understand even differently than Protestants. Yeah. Because in my Protestant childhood, the atonement, which is not a word we ever used even once. I never heard that word. But what the Savior did was about his death. He died. He paid the price. But what I understand now is that atoning work in the garden and the praying and the advocating that really, with time as an illusion, is ongoing. Yes. And so it goes just from his death to being grace and my own life being given back to me as part of that grace. Mm. Does that make sense? Being given back to you as a freedom. Yes. Even my agency, what I'm going to do with it. Yeah, we talked, we had talked at one point about boundaries or commandments initially feeling like they were a prison wall, right? that you could not step out of line or you would be condemned, right? But thinking of the difference between a prison fence and a playground fence, being that a playground fence is put there by someone who loves you and wants you to be safe. It's there to help you, but it allows you to play safely in an environment in which you were protected, as opposed to a prison fence, which is there to mark you as somebody who has already messed up and to say things can only get worse from here, right? <laughs> Pass this line and, and you're in trouble, mister. Right, exactly. I was, I was struck again by something that you said about growing up, you were taught that salvation comes through grace and what that meant was that you had to, if you messed up, then you were in trouble, which... Is justice. Yeah, it's not grace at all. Grace is about forgiveness, right? So they had framed this understanding as grace, but what they were actually teaching, whether it was through words or through their actions, 
was not about grace. It was salvation by works of you have to be good enough to be saved. And and what the image that came to mind as you were talking about it just now was the idea that grace is a soap bubble that could pop at any moment, like do the wrong thing and it's gone and you're lost, right? But I feel like grace is a much more substantial, powerful, sturdy substance than a soap bubble. It is strong enough to hold us in all of our struggles. It is strong enough to... Um, clean away all of our sins and all of our shortcomings, all the things that make us ungodly, um, that is all covered. Like it's a very powerful, um, not a substance, but... It's strong, not fragile. Yeah, exactly. Wow. The week after we talked about all of those things, the bishop actually referenced a... BYU education talk, which I can share the link of in the description of the podcast. But he talked about it. And the more he talked about it, the more I thought, I know her. This person <laughs> is actually my friend. I know her from the Middle East. The, the speaker that he was referencing. Yes. And so I used, I looked up the link to the talk he was referencing and it totally was her. It was my friend, Sahar Komseya. <laughs> and so... I, I've interviewed her for the podcast and she did a lovely job and was so vulnerable. But one of the things she talks about in this particular talk, she, that our Bishop was referencing that she gave at education week, she talks about how obedience is actually a lower law, Mm. not an irrelevant law, but a lower law. And it got my attention because you had been referencing as playground to be safe, right? But when we think about playgrounds, we think about young children. Yeah. And so that makes sense to me of obedience as a beginning, as a starting place, as fundamental, not irrelevant, not something you don't need anymore, but fundamental, foundational, right? So obedience, meaning like doing the thing because that's what you're told to do, right? Is it a shift when you're talking about it being a lower law? Are you talking about a shift of external motivation versus internal motivation? Right. And then the higher law, she said, again, with the temple pattern is consecration. Mm. And she said, one thing that we forget is the difference between consecration and sacrifice. And the reason this was applicable to me was because it went back to our conversation about how do we integrate all those parts of the past and all the different needs from the past, even though also being a convert and not letting go of parts of who I am as opposed to behaviors I did, for example. Like, I'm not trying to be naughty. I'm not trying to push the boundaries. But I mean, as opposed to, like, what is the difference between sacrificing parts of myself and using all of myself for good? That's my question. It's not how to get away with something. It's about what's the difference between denying part of me as who I am and embracing all of who I am and using it for good. I think it goes back to what you started out talking about pushing boundaries. Um, I think when you, 
I guess talking about you specifically as a convert, when you joined the church, you gave yourself a very strict set of limits because you wanted to be safe. You wanted to stay right on the path. You were not going to do anything that was going to put you in any danger. And as time has gone on and your testimony has grown and your faith and understanding have grown, you're, you have begun to learn that there is more freedom there, that it is not about making your life as restricted as possible, but that you have the ability to do more things in a way that is still like living a consecrated life. One very silly example that I can think of is before you joined the church, I happen to know that you had the DVD collection of Back to the Future. <laughs> and I seem to remember that either shortly before or after we got married, you threw it out because it had some bad language in it and you just didn't want that to be part of your life. You were afraid that if you were listening to that, that it would start coming out of your mouth again or you you just wanted to make a clean sweep. And I think that is a wonderful and faith-filled choice. Um, but those were also movies that you had really enjoyed growing up and you wanted to share them with our children. And so what we ended up doing was watching them with our children, but also taking time to have conversations with them about like, what do we do when someone we know is using bad language? Does that mean we pick up those words? Do we point it out and judge them for it? How do we respond? Um, what do we do to respond to bullying, since there's a lot of bullying in it? Um, and so, even though in some ways it has exposed the children to language that they don't have ordinarily at home, that they're not hearing from us, um, it has prepared them more for being out in the world away from us. So in a way, we have consecrated that movie viewing experience um, and made it something that was a, a righteous teaching opportunity. So I feel like that is the process that you're going through as you like take the training wheels off and you're like, okay, it's not about just restrictions. It's about making who I am consecrated. So that is exactly what Sahar said in her talk, that sacrificing is about giving up and it being consumed, which there are some things that that is entirely appropriate or sometimes in temple pattern that that is called for. But also in the temple, that smoke represents our prayers. Mm, yeah. And so part of our sacrifice really is the time and devotion of saying our prayers and studying the scriptures and that time of worship and communion because we can't have that relationship without spending time with him. Mm. But she said that consecration is when it's used for good, which is what you're talking about, of let's include this piece, but use it for good. Yeah which is a beautiful thing, but makes sense to me now why it is a higher law and a piece of my faith that I didn't understand in the very beginning when I was just focused on, don't do this, don't do this, like the restrictions. So another example that I can think of that's super neutral would be like the Sabbath. 
right? When I first joined the church, all I could think of, like I would just sit still all day because I can't do this and 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 I can't do like, right? I cannot do anything on the Sabbath. Like there's nothing. I'm not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. That's what it felt like. And that's what I tried to do because I literally had to learn how to set it apart. Mm. But then I learned later that there are lots of good things I can add to the Sabbath that make it using the Sabbath for good, for things that are about connecting with others, serving others, family history, or learning about myself, or even journaling, um, and, and then passing that down to the children in tangible ways looked very similar to that, where initially it was like, okay, what do you want to do to make the Sabbath different? And when our children were very little, what they decided they wanted to do is that they would not play Legos all week so that on Sunday they could play Legos because it was like creation. Yeah. So they came up with this on their own and... It was a very tangible, obedient kind of way to keep the Sabbath. But now that they're becoming teenagers, even though they still love Legos and will play with them on Sundays, they also know about genealogy and they also go serve the grandparents and they also are learning to do ministering with you or with me or we go sing for people or play for people or visiting in the nursing home or things yeah. like that. And so, so learning from, so shifting from these are the restrictions of obedience to this is how I get to create the holiness of what this is. This is what this looks like when it's consecrated. When I work on sanctifying myself and consecrating who I am, then I get to love and it looks like this and it looks like this and it looks like this and it looks like this. And that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And we talked about like the culture language right now is binary and non-binary <laughs> and not even talking about gender, just like black and white thinking, right? Yeah. Like all our kids have trauma histories. They're all in therapy and that comes up a lot. Like where is the gray? How can you hold both? It's not just this or that. What does that look like? And how do you love somebody who believes this when you believe largely an opposite thing? Like, how do you, how can you hold on to both of those things at the same time? Right. How can you understand that this person believes the opposite that you do, but they do it for good reasons, that they're not fools, they're not monsters, that they have thought it out in their own hearts and have just decided differently than you. So how do you show respect to that thing, even if it is incompatible with what you hold dear? And even the children experiencing that through contentious years with politics were so divisive for a while. For a while. Oh, the, those, those were so long ago. The pandemic <laughs> was so divisive in some yeah. ways. Right. And the children saying, well, who's right, this or that? And it's like, well, the question is actually bigger than that. How do we love them? Yeah. How do we love them? How do we make space in our hearts for all of these people, whether that's people who 
go to our church or people who go to our church but think differently mm-hmm. or go to a different church or who don't go to church or who vote differently or who do want to be vaccinated or who do not want to be vaccinated. How do you love? What does love look like? And you and I were talking about in Come Follow Me mm-hmm. recently. Do you still have the verses that you sent me? This morning? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have them right here. So in Come Follow Me, this we've been reading Psalms. Yes. And can you read just those verses that you sent me this morning? Sure. This is from Psalm 77, verses 10 through 12. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. And you said, I feel like the verse about the transition from the letter of the law, which is the binary, you're either perfect or you're damned, into the training wheel free higher law, the law was given to show people their weakness and their dependence on the Savior, a law of sacrifice and rules. That was fulfilled through Jesus who made the eternal perfect sacrifice. It then in its consecrated state becomes a law of the heart and intention. We are still commanded to repent because that's part of the sanctification process. But because we are justified by the atonement, declared worthy even while we are imperfect, we are now expected to consecrate our hearts and minds and make the choices that follow therefrom. We are no longer hostage to the law and the fear of imperfection. I think that was referencing an earlier verse. Let me see if I can find it. That's it. Okay, I found you had said this verse to me, and I think you have my response to it there. Um, this is Third Nephi chapter 15, verse 7 and 8. And because I said unto you that old things have passed away, I do not destroy that which hath been spoken concerning things which are to come. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. So it started out with this system of very structured rules, but all of those rules were pointing towards the Savior who was going to take the training wheels off. He was going to say, you know, I have paid for all of your sins now, so now your goal is to turn your hearts to me and then make the choices that follow naturally out of that commitment. Um which is a lot more freedom and a lot more responsibility. Um, it can seem a lot scarier because it's harder to know for 100% sure what, what you're doing, except if your heart is in the right place, the spirit will continue to guide you and teach you. It doesn't have to be scary. Um, it's, it's really liberating. I, as I have been on this journey of studying this, all summer, really. I wrestled with it all summer and and even since spring. And so in a way, it's been sort of fun because it's the first time that I have really wrestled with something that was 
topical in a long time. I've still been reading my scriptures all this time and I'm still learning and growing, but this was like a particular thing I really, really wanted to understand and really, really wanted to grasp and really, really wanted to heal from my own religious trauma in the past. And so I've wrestled with it and wrestled with it, wrestled with it. And I will not forget ever the feeling of liberation when it really finally poured into me and clicked that I have already been set free from the law, not above the law, but that it's not dependent on me. Like that's the whole point of the savior. And that all this time of me being afraid, like, what if I'm missing the mark? Like missing the mark is not realizing it's the savior who's doing all this, who's taking care of this, who is still in that timeless way. He has already paid for the things you are doing now. <laughs> right. time and travel, yeah. Advocating for me still. Yeah, absolutely. And that I am set free from that law in a binary this or that kind of punitive way mm. and liberated to consecrate my life of, okay, Heavenly Father, this is who I am. This is what I have to give. Please use it for good. Help me to love well. Help me to create beauty in the world in some sappy way, in whatever way I have access to, and the freedom to just be myself in this world, on this planet, and to to offer something good. Maybe that's trauma as well from, from my childhood, but that anything I could offer could even be good. But it's the same piece of, I am already good and I am already worthy because I am a child of heavenly parents and nothing even on planet earth can change that right. or take away from that. There's a, a principle that I that I teach every chance I get because it's been so important in my life. It's the idea of justification and sanctification. And I can't even remember at this point where I learned it the first time, but um, when we justify something, one of the best visual images for what it means to be justified by Christ is to think about the full justify button in a word processor where you hit full justify and the lines pop out to the margins perfectly, even though the number of letter characters doesn't match exactly. So when we are justified by grace, we are declared righteous. We are declared worthy, even though we are not perfect. We are, through Christ, able to be declared acceptable. And then the process of sanctification is the process of continuing to be purified and to repent and to try again and to desire better. It's the the process from Abraham 1, right, where he talks about seeking greater righteousness and more blessings and greater righteousness and more knowledge and greater blessings and more, like that's the sanctification process. And we're not there yet. We're still flawed, but through justification, through grace, we are declared righteous. We are worthy. And through sanctification and also through grace, because we can't we can't heal our mistakes from the past without the Savior, without the atonement. But through that process and our repentance, 
we are made to become whole. I, I think it's important to understand that those two things are not the same thing. And then consecration is still something altogether, that as we are made whole, using that whole to wholly be used for good, which is holiness. Yeah, absolutely. I think both sacrifice and consecration are on that process of sanctification. But it does feel like consecration becomes a higher law in a degree than than sacrifice. It's not just clearing out the ungodliness, which is essential, but it is using what is there to become even better. I think that's a piece that comes from trauma because when you grow up with the thought that I'm bad, it's hard to know that there's anything good to offer. Mm. So clearing out the bad feels like clearing out me. Oh, wow. Do you see how that gets twisted? And I know that's like a perversion that the adversary has done. The concept of embracing the good that is already me. Yes. Is such a restorative concept. It instantly makes me think of one of my favorite verses, which is in the last chapter of Moroni, Moroni 10, verse 32, where it says... Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. So he's not even saying, turn your ungodly bits into godly bits. He's saying, scrub off the ungodly parts, because what is underneath is already godly. I love that. That who you are is already a child of God. You don't have to become something you're not. You have to clear away... The, the mortal habits and weaknesses and um, flaws that we develop over time, bad patterns of choice, so that we can really reveal and shine forth who we truly are. It's so powerful. Yeah. Thank you. That was a lot. Thank you for talking with me. Anytime. And processing this with me for weeks and weeks and weeks. Do you feel like you're still on your mission sometimes when you're stuck with me for a decade? No, you're better than any companion I ever had. I loved my companions, but I would not have married them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on the podcast to talk with me about obedience and consecration. Happy to be here. And thanks for living it with me. I do what I can. Even the messy bits in the middle. So many messy bits. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Saints and Humans, a podcast for chaplains, even those of us who are very human and still learning to become saints. You can follow us by subscribing to the podcast on any podcast player. Thank you.